One of my favourite musicians is the Afrikaans singer Lorica Rauch. There's something you may not have known about me. I enjoy Kindes van die Wind, May Oom Samorte, Op Bloberg Strand, Lisa Seklefier. There's a very beautiful and haunting song, though, that Lorica sings in English, which basically consists of a whole group of place names, and they're all place names where tragedy has taken place. They're the kinds of names that when you hear them, you feel a sense of sorrow. Let me try and play the first part of the song to you. So interesting to me that one of the place names that she mentions is Bethlehem, right in between Waco and Srebrenica. That's an interesting choice, isn't it? We all know about Bethlehem, don't we? We see pictures of it on our Christmas cards every year. We sing about it as well. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by. Well, that's how we might think of Bethlehem. But the passage that we're going to look at this morning paints a very different picture of Bethlehem indeed. We're going to have a look at Matthew chapter 2 and verses 1 to 18, the visit of the Magi to the baby Jesus in Bethlehem. Now, we normally read this passage at Christmas time. But if you read Matthew's account carefully, you'll discover that he speaks about the Magi coming to the house where the child was. And based on that and Herod's directives regarding children under the age of two, we surmise that the events Matthew describes took place when Jesus was a little older, one or at the most two years old. In fact, this past Wednesday, January the 6th, some sections of the Christian Church would have celebrated the feast day of Epiphany, which commemorates the visit of the Magi and takes place a little bit after Christmas to show that there is a gap between the shepherds and the angels in the stable and this visit of the Magi. Epiphany celebrates, among other things, God revealing his Messiah to the Gentiles, to foreigners. Let's have a look. The theme for our sermon today is What Christmas Did Not Do. Matthew writes, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, 
Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they'd heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and of incense and of myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another way. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he'd learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. This is God's word. This is not a scene that our Christmas cards or Christmas carols or Christmas nativity scenes dwell on, but it was just as much a part of that first Christmas as shepherds and angels. Matthew begins the story by reminding us that all this took place during the time of King Herod. In fact, both Matthew and Luke make extensive references to the various Caesars and rulers who lived at that time. And in doing that, they are telling us something very important. They are telling us that their Gospels are historical, not mythological. These events do not happen once upon a time or a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. They are tied down to a particular place and a particular time in history. You'll know from Luke's Gospel that the very reason Mary and Joseph are in Bethlehem in the first place has to do with the order of Caesar Augustus. 
They didn't live in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth. But at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, we read how in order to increase his tax base, Caesar issues the order that every male must register at the town of his birth. Isn't it amazing? There we have Caesar, who lifts his finger in the city of Rome, and 6,000 kilometers away, a little family starts out on a dangerous journey to Bethlehem. This passage reminds us that this little family are subject to powers that are far mightier than they are. But in fact, those great powers are in the hands of a much greater power. Throughout all of this history, we can still see the hand of God at work. One of the things that struck me as I read this passage is the number of times Matthew uses the words fulfilled. Did you notice as we read? In verse 5, Herod asks the religious leaders where the Messiah is to be born, and they reply, this is what the prophet has written. Verse 15, and so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet. Verse 17, then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. This is a passage that is full of tragedy, and yet God is still in control. He is working despite the tragedy. In fact, he is working even through the tragedy. Well, as Matthew tells us, one of the earthly powers at this time was King Herod. Herod was not a true Jew. He was a half-Jew, and so he wasn't really accepted by the people of Israel. Also, in getting to the throne, Herod had wiped out the members of the Hasmonean family, whom the Jewish people saw as their true leaders. So Herod wasn't particularly popular at all. Herod had been put in power by the Romans. He was also known as Herod the Great because he was involved in an extensive building program in Israel. He built the fortress of Masada and he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem, a magnificent structure. But when you look at this immense building campaign, you kind of get the feeling that Herod was compensating for something. He was extremely insecure. Having reached the very top, he was convinced that someone was going to try and push him off. By the time of the events that Matthew describes here, he had been reigning for over 30 years, and he'd made a lot of enemies. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian of that time, summarizes Herod's life in this way. He says, Herod never stopped avenging and punishing every day those who had chosen to be of the party of his enemies. Herod had his own wife, Mariamna, killed in order to further his own political ends. Two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, were also sent to Rome and executed. Their brother Antipater had poisoned Herod's mind against them so that he could be Herod's successor. But actually, this didn't help Antipater himself because he also fell under Herod's suspicions and was killed just a few days before Herod's own death. Augustus Caesar himself, having watched Herod in action, once declared, it is better to be a pig in Herod's household than Herod's son. 
Just before he died, Herod ordered that on the day of his death, a number of the leading citizens of Israel should also be killed so that there would be an appropriate atmosphere of mourning in Israel. Herod was a conniving, scheming, evil man. And it's no surprise then that Herod should act in the way that Matthew records here. The wise men come to Jerusalem and they ask, Where is the one born king of the Jews? They are ushered into Herod's presence and they repeat the question, The king of the Jews, where is he? Well, the answer to that question was pretty obvious. Here he is. I am he. That exact title, the King of the Jews, was the title that the Roman Senate had given to Herod, and it was a title that Herod had fought tooth and nail for, for three years, until he was installed in Jerusalem. Herod is now nearing the end of his life. Within one year he will be dead, and yet he still has this fanatical desire to hold on to power. And so Herod's security system swings into action. He discovers whereabouts the baby is from the religious rulers. He will be born in Bethlehem. And he plans to find out the exact location from the wise men on their return journey. But that plan fails. I don't think that the wise men trusted Herod anyway. But they are also warned in a dream not to return to Herod. When Herod realizes that he has been tricked, he gives out this revolting order. Wipe out all the male babies under two in Bethlehem. All of them, your majesty? Yes, the lot. Indiscriminately? Yes. Throughout Bethlehem? Yes, and in all the surrounding areas too. Let's make sure. And not just the newborn ones, all babies under the age of two. In terms of our theme today, there were at least two things that that first Christmas did not do. Firstly, Christmas did not eliminate evil. This was an extremely evil man and an extremely evil action. It had the same morality and fairness to it as the gas chambers in World War II or the killing fields of Cambodia. The innocent suffer with there being no rhyme or reason to their suffering. Which brings us to the second thing that that first Christmas did not do. Christmas did not eliminate human suffering. Can you sense the suffering involved in this passage? Matthew quotes the prophet Jeremiah at this point, Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah is picturing the destruction of Jerusalem back in 586 B.C., when the Babylonian army marched into the city and slaughtered the population. It was a terrible massacre. And Jeremiah imagined Rachel, who was the mother to the twelve sons who would become the twelve tribes of Israel. He imagines her weeping and mourning for her children. And here Matthew takes that same image and uses it again. We use the expression, someone turning in their grave, Well, Matthew pictures Rachel turning in her grave, weeping aloud for these innocent children in Bethlehem. And folk, as we look back over just this past week, we all now know that there is still evil and suffering in our own world. 
and even in our own lives. For many of us, suffering and sorrow and tragedy used to be something that we read about in our newspapers, but not anymore. As one widely shared meme puts it, the numbers are turning into names, and those names are people we know. The first Christmas has not eliminated suffering and sadness. Well, if that's what Christmas did not do, what in the world did it do? Is there anything to celebrate about Christmas? Well, yes, I believe that there is. We're not going to solve the problem of evil and suffering today. I don't actually believe that there are any definitive answers to the problem, at least not this side of eternity. But I do think that there are four things that can be said from this passage about evil and suffering. They're not all the things that can be said, but just four that may be helpful to us today. Firstly, I think it's important to see that the first Christmas was not an end, but a beginning. That's very important to remember. That first Christmas was not an end, it was a beginning. In fact, it wasn't even the very first step. The Bible clearly tells us that Jesus has triumphed over suffering and sin and death, but we need to see clearly exactly how that victory has and will take place. It wasn't all in one step. In fact, there are at least seven, if not more, steps to God's victory over suffering and sin. Firstly, the victory was predicted in the Old Testament. We've already pointed out how Matthew records several times this took place to fulfill. God had already predicted these events. Secondly, God's conquest of evil and suffering was begun at the birth of Jesus. As I said, it's a beginning step. Thirdly, God's conquest of evil and suffering was extended through Jesus's life as he performed miracles and cast out demons. Fourthly, the conquest was achieved at the cross. The Apostle Paul tells us this in the book of Colossians. Jesus, having disarmed the powers and authorities, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. But even there, although the power of evil and darkness was defeated, there is still a battle raging, as we will see. Fifthly, the conquest was confirmed and announced at the resurrection. Sixthly, God's conquest of evil and suffering is extended through the church. And we'll look again at that in a moment. And finally, one day, the conquest will be consummated at the second coming of Christ. That's when the battle will finally be over. Christmas was not the end, rather it was the beginning. Just going back to that list of names that Lorica Rauch sings about, one of the names that she sings is the name Normandy. Normandy is that little stretch of coast along France on which, on the 6th of June 1944, during World War II, the British and American troops began their final push into Europe. It was called D-Day, 
Operation Overlord. Thousands of Allied troops died on the beaches that day, but finally, at the end of the day, the Allies held those beachheads and the armies of Britain and America could move into Europe. The 6th of June, 1944, D-Day, was not the end of the war. World War II would only end on the 7th of May, 1945, ten long months later. It would be known as VE Day, Victory in Europe. What D-Day accomplished, though, was the certainty that eventually VE Day would come. The war would end. And that first Christmas was really like D-Day. It was not the final victory over sin and evil. But in that small baby of Bethlehem was the promise and the hope of a future final victory. And that brings us to the second point. The first Christmas gives us hope. We've seen how Matthew shows that that first Christmas was a fulfillment of God's promises made centuries earlier. And because we can read how God was faithful to fulfill his earlier promises, we can be certain that he will fulfill his other promises too. His promise to come again and renew all things, to bring a new heaven and a new earth where there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things will pass away. Just to say that it is possible to lose sight of God's final future victory and expect that all of God's blessings are available in the here and now. This seems to have been one of the many problems in the church at Corinth, so that in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul sarcastically writes, Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. You have begun to reign, and that without us. How I wish that you'd really begun to reign, so that we also might reign with you. The problem with taking the future conquest of evil and sin and applying all of it to the present is that this life then becomes all-important, so much so that we forget eternity, and in opposition to what Jesus said, we lay up for ourselves treasures on earth. Sickness and suffering and death are then either denied or seen as the greatest of tragedies. But when we keep God's future kingdom firmly in mind, when we set our minds on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, then it transforms what otherwise we might consider tragedy. We remind ourselves that God is in control that all things work together for the good of those who love God, that all things are being used by God to conform us to the image of his Son, and that actually, even to die, is gain. As we've already said, God was totally in control of the events of that first Christmas. All that took place, all of the decisions and actions of men and women, including the evil actions of King Herod, simply served to fulfill God's purpose that was written about hundreds of years before it came to pass. And the same holds true today. God is in control of the events of our world and the events of our lives. We cannot always see his hand, 
But God is moving history towards that final picture in the book of Revelation. As John writes in Revelation chapter 15, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Just going back to that Lorica Rauch song again, having named all of these various cities, Lorica goes on to sing this in the final verse. There's another song that will be sung. There's another bell that must be rung. There's another city, I've been told, where the streets are paved with gold. Thirdly, not only was that first Christmas a beginning, not only does it give us hope, I think that this passage gives us assurance. And the assurance is that God is with us in our suffering. You see, this Christmas story might not be the one that we want to hear, but it might just be the one that we need. Because if we have a God who isn't willing to come to Bethlehem, then he won't be able to do us much good. But this isn't the God of Oxford or the God of Cambridge. This is not the God of Hollywood or Malibu or Madison Garden. This is not the God of Milan or Paris. This is the God of Bethlehem, of Boipatong, of Sharpville, of Auschwitz. He has come down into the mess of our world to help get us out of it. You might say, but hold on a moment, Jesus escaped. He's the only baby who lived. Well, yes, this time. But from the moment of his birth, Jesus was on a collision course with the powers of this dark world, and one day they would collide at the cross. You may remember that the title King of the Jews crops up again in Scripture. It's the title under which Jesus dies. Above Jesus' head as he dies on the cross is that title, the King of the Jews. Finally, not only was that first Christmas a beginning, not only does it bring us hope, not only does it bring us assurance, I think it presents a challenge to the church. I spoke a moment ago about the error of believing that all of the benefits of Jesus' final victory over evil and suffering are available right now. But there's a second equal and opposite error, and that is to push all of the benefits of Jesus' victory over evil and suffering into the future. We focus so much on the fact that one day God will sort everything out that we neglect the power of the gospel now. And the consequences of that are that we never then walk towards suffering and evil. We never pray for God's healing. We never ask for God's intervention. And we never follow God's prompting to bring his kingdom to earth, to be feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting those in prison. It's our job to bring healing to the nations. Jesus is not physically present here on earth, but he's present through his body, the church, through you and me together. You see, we could spend hours talking and debating the topic of evil and suffering. We could even come up with some brilliant theological or philosophical answers to the question. But all of that won't make any difference unless we are willing to be used by Jesus to bring healing 
and to bring justice and to bring hope. And that means walking with him daily, listening for his voice and doing what he calls us to do. It might not necessarily be anything big. It could be as simple as sending someone a voice note or making a regular phone call to someone who is isolated in this time. It could be helping someone to organize online shopping, starting an online Bible study group, chatting with the cashier at Pick and Pay, getting to know her, asking about her family, taking a genuine interest, or the petrol pump attendant, offering to pray for someone. A few years back, I came across a wonderful poem by Howard Thurman called The Work of Christmas, which is so appropriate for us just 16 days after we've celebrated the birth of Christ. Let me read it to you. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flock, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken, to feed the hungry, to release the prisoners, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among people, to make music in the heart. And so while the angels did announce to the shepherds, peace on earth, it's fairly clear that that first Christmas did not eliminate evil and suffering. What it did, though, was to open up a way for the final battle to be accomplished. It gives us hope that one day God will bring his kingdom here on earth. It assures us that God knows and has experienced everything that you and I have ever experienced. And it challenges us to do the work of God here on earth until he comes. Amen.